Hey there, I'm Jason Gotts, and you're listening to Think Again, a Big Think podcast. Started in 2008, Big Think is a kind of online think tank of big ideas from some of the most creative thinkers on the planet. On the Think Again podcast, we revisit these ideas in new and unpredictable ways. Our producers surprise me and my guests with short interview clips from Big Think's archives, ideas that we didn't come here expecting to discuss. I'm very, very happy to be here today with author Salman Rushdie. He's the author of 12 previous novels and four books of nonfiction, including Joseph Anton, Midnight's Children, uh, that's fiction, for which he won the Booker Prize and the Best of the Booker, Shame, The Satanic Verses, and Two Years, Eight Months, and 28 Nights, which we discussed two years ago on this show. He is a member of the American Academy of Arts and Letters and a distinguished writer in residence at New York University. His kaleidoscopic, funny, philosophical new novel, The Golden House, has been called a return to realism, but maybe only because the present-day American realities it draws upon and reimagines are so indistinguishable from fantasy. Welcome to Think Again, Salma. Thank you. Yeah, good to be here. I think I want to start with the idea of film. Um, film plays a very big role in this book, and it's important that the narrator is a filmmaker who is making a film. I mean, I think I guess we can come back to a brief kind of overview of what what the book is about, but let's start mm. let's start with film. Like films play a big role here. Yeah, I mean, I've, you know, always said that films have played a very big role in my understanding of the world, you know. I mean, like w when I was uh, when I was at college at Cambridge in England, um, there was this little like art house theater uh, call, called the Arts Cinema, right? Which, like everything else, now it's a coffee house. Um, <laughs> no, no more cinema. No just, more, no uh, more cinema. Uh, just uh, coffee. Um, <laughs> but it was. I feel that in that relatively small room, you know, I got as much of my education as I got anywhere else in the university. You know, because mm. this was. I mean, this is the mid '60s. I'm saying, and this, this is a, a really rich period of world cinema. You know, Godard uh, comes up a lot in the book. Yeah, yeah. yeah, so from I think from like the late 50s to the early 70s, there's a period there of all, which I think is the, like the golden age of the sound cinema. Mm. And yeah, I mean, I was being blown away by what were then the new films. I mean, it's very hard to describe the feeling right. of going to the movies and this week's new movie is La Dolce Vita, you know. <laughs> right, you right, know, right, or, right. Or whatever it might be. And so... I was watching the, you know, the Godard, the French New Wave, the, the Italian New Wave, all these great world cinema people like Ingmar Bergman and Satyajit Ray and Akira Kurosawa and Luis Buñuel. And, and they were new. And they were new. It was these were the new movies. Yeah. You know, and it was just mind blowing to be going to the cinema and seeing new move this week's new movies, which were like that. And so I've always felt that the cinema was a colossal shaping influence on, mm. on my work. And actually, it's taken me this long to write about a filmmaker, you know? That, that, right. And, and it, uh, have, have films played in, like, has, like, have filmic, I'm sure filmic ideas, but have films specifically come up explicitly throughout your writing? Yes. Or? I mean, like, yeah. you know, Midnight's Children, for example. I mean, you know, if you write about Bombay, it's a movie city. You know, so it's, it's sure. re really impossible to write about that place without writing about movies to some degree. Right, right. And so a lot of my books which have taken place there have had movie elements in them, you know. Got it. And in this case, when I was first thinking about the character of René, the filmmaker, I hadn't understood that he was a filmmaker. I thought in a really tedious way, I thought that he might be a writer. 
you know. <laughs> <laughs> and, and then I suddenly realized, you know, that's a really awful idea. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but, one can understand how it might have occurred to you. Yeah, but, yeah. but awful, <laughs> awful idea. I thought it'd be better if he was anything else. It'd be right. better if he was a dentist. You know, right. Right, 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 right. Um, and then I suddenly thought, well, maybe he's a young filmmaker in New York trying to make his way. You know, and, and like the moment I thought that, right. This whole vista of the book opened up in front of me, you know, where I could use this lifetime's love of film and filmmaking and finally write about somebody for whom it was also his great passion. Right, and it, and it makes perfect sense, you know, it, it's, I mean, a perfect lens, um, in air quotes, through which to, to view the story of the, the novel because you have, so here, here we'll do the, the very brief synopsis. I mean, you have, it, it's a story of a family, the Golden family, it's called the Golden House, and, um, and it's a father and three sons, and ultimately what one might refer to as a gold digging. Russian uh, girl. <laughs> Russian girl. Yeah. Um, and, 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 and they all live in this community, which is called what gardens? It's called, well, it's uh, the real name is the McDougal Sullivan right, right, right. Gardens. Right, right, right. Uh, in the it, village, yeah. And it exists, you know, it's there between McDougal and Sullivan Street. There is this little communal garden, which, I mean, I have, as it happens, I have a couple of friends who have homes there. Got it. So I got to know it. And it suddenly struck me how theatrical it was. You know that that it's like a little, it's like a, an amphitheater. You know, right? That, how many houses are there? There's about a dozen on each side. So you know, all the so, families have access yeah, to each and every, other's and, lives. And 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 it also feels a little bit like Hitchcock's Rear Window. You know that everybody is able <laughs> to look into everybody else's lives. Right. And actually, I then discovered in one of these serendipitous things that that the house that Hitchcock actually based Rear Window on. Mm was about 100 yards away on Christopher Street. Okay. You know, yeah, so, yeah, you uh, mentioned that, yeah. I think, in the book. Yeah, and yeah. I thought, well, then, okay, then I'm doing something right, you know, if it, if it has that sort of echo. I mean, I guess it's, yeah, it's, you know, it's sort of the same, in a sense, as any small town or village. It mm. just happens to be in the middle exactly. of New York City. It's, like, it's exactly that, to create a kind of small-town atmosphere in which everybody knows everyone's business. Right. You know, but to have that in the middle of the metropolis of New York City, it's you know, remarkable. It's, it's, yeah. it's wonderful to have that, the microcosm inside the bigger world. Yeah. And so the reason I, that it makes sense on a lot of levels for Rene to be a filmmaker is that the Golden family has reinvented itself. And now one thing I want to say here is that it seems like spoilers might kind of be a problem in a conversation about this book <laughs> because like you, you there, there's a series, there's a lot of foreshadowing that happens and, and it's kind of maybe filmic or mm. televisual and televisual in that way. Mm. But there's there's a lot of moments, you know, at the ends of chapters where it's like, and then, yeah. you know. <laughs> and 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 so I don't I don't want to reveal too much, you know. Yeah, but, there are cliffhanger endings. Yeah. Um, and I mean that's you know, I have obviously using a whole bunch of cinematic techniques you right. know, to do that. And, and there is a, you know, there's a big reveal, I mean, like towards the last quarter of the right. book. Right, you know, which uh, we won't reveal. Let's we, not no. reveal that. But yeah. the big question for me writing the book is, was exactly how much to tell people when, you right. know, about the back, the back story of this mysterious family that arrives in New York and, and conceals everything about itself. You know, um, yeah. And you immediately, of course, as the reader, you want to know why are they doing this? Who are these people? Right. Why are they doing this? Right. What's going on? You know, what have they got to hide? And, Absolutely. And so on. And the answer to that is plenty. 
Right. They have um, a great deal to hide. And, it, and you know, it makes for a sort of an exciting mystery story. It's a yeah. bit of an investigation, yeah. you know. I mean, one of the things I always thought about the mystery, which is, is that you have to write it backwards. You know, you actually, you as the writer, you have to know right. the, the, what the mystery was, and then you have to disguise it. Yes. You know, so, so this I, I haven't really written in that sense a kind of mystery before. Mm. But, but uh, this is a first. But huh? this is a first. So I had to use those techniques of of the of the thriller writer, the mystery writer, you know, or filmmaker. Yeah. Because I know exactly what happened, but I don't want you to know. I need to sometimes deliberately deflect you and send you in the wrong direction. What I like about your writing is that you seem to have a lot of fun with that stuff. Mm. It does, you know, there, these, I can feel you at play in mm. the writing. It doesn't seem like, like, okay, here's a cliffhanger, now what? No, you no, know, it was like, actually exactly the, the <laughs> point about the moment of realizing that Rene would be a movie maker mm. is it allowed a lot of that playfulness to come into the book. It, right. allowed, it allowed me to write passages which kind of slide in and out of screenplay yeah. a, a little bit, and which and which use cinematic montage cutting effects, you know, things like that. Right, um, right. And it just allowed a, a degree of playfulness into the form of the book, into the way the book was written. Yeah. Um, and that was very, I mean, that was enjoyable to me. Yeah. You also seem to be maybe a comics buff. Yeah. You bring up comics a yes. lot, like yes. in this book and in the last book. You brought up V for Vendetta, but not the comic. You yes, mentioned the yeah, movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I mean, I, I mean, I, I know the Wachowskis a little bit, and, and, and in fact, met them when they invited me to the opening of V for Vendetta. And so, uh, and so I, you know, I, and of course, V for Vendetta now has this other echo in in, in anonymous masks and right, and, and, you know, right. And, and so on. But yeah, I mean, I grew up with com I mean, I grew up with with you know the comic books of the nineteen fifties. The 60s, which was superhero really, comics. So, yeah, Superman, Batman, Wonder Woman, you know, Aquaman, yeah, yeah. Justice League, all that stuff, you know, and uh, and became. I mean, I became, and I still, to an extent, remain an expert at all of that. Not mm. as much as Michael Chabon, but almost. Did you ever like? Did you dig into the? Sort of second wave of literary comics, like, like graphic novels and so on. A little on. bit, yeah. I yeah. Mean, I'm not like an expert, but I have looked at some of them, and I've looked at like in, in a way like the remaking of the Batman story and the, uh -huh. kind of dark, the, art, the, um, the Dark Frank Knight. Miller's, yeah, yeah. exactly, exactly. Yeah. So, I've, and actually, my British publishers have an amazing list of graphic novels. I mean, they they really probably have the best graphic mm. novel publishing list, you know. Um, and so I've dived into that a little bit. Yeah, yeah. And I had, you know, in my last novel, in Two Years, Eight Months, 28 Nights, there's a character of this young South Asian kid in Queens who wants to be a graphic novelist and isn't being very successful. And then his kind of nightmare imagination kind of comes to life around him, his, the monsters that he's creating. And I had the idea that he could actually be a spin-off character. I had the idea that you could actually now take him and have a graphic novel about it. Right, so, right. So I'm sort of trying to float that idea with the publishers. Oh, that would be interesting. I was talking to two, two writers, Neil Stevenson and mm. Nicole Galland, who mm -hmm. had written a book together, and mm. they were talking about how they're, they're now writing, this is now a thing to write sort of mini fictions that take place within the world of the book that you've just written. Huh, huh. Like, huh. like stories or spin, oh, you know, oh, other. interesting. Yeah. I did that once. I mean, when in, in my novel Fury, which is another New York novel, it's a novel about New York in the year 2000, mm. uh, when I was first living here. In the middle of that novel, there's a science fiction story 
Right. You know, most okay. of the most of the novel is completely like naturalistic novel about New York, mm -hmm. but one of the characters is involved with science fiction, and and, and so in, there's just one chapter in the novel which is one of the stories, you know. Nice. And, yeah. Uh, so yeah, I've done that once. And you play with that a little bit in this mm -hmm. book, uh, not not that specifically, mm -hmm. but like there is a screenplay embedded in yes. one chapter. And yes, the, because the narrator who is telling us the story is, is, also, is also trying to make a movie. Right, you know? right, and, right, right. And, and there's a moment which actually I found very, uh, that I liked a lot towards the end of the book where his movie is finished, right, and, and has come out, right. but the action of the novel is still continuing. So the people he's made the movie about are still alive and they're still having a somewhat different ending yeah. than the ending in the movie. And there was that question that came up sort of earlier in the novel mm. of like, how much does he actually really need to know about yeah. these people's lives? Yeah. At what point can he just go off and make, and his, make his movie? His film, exactly. yeah, yeah. And also, how much is he telling us the truth? Right. You know? there's, because he is making up the film as he, tell, as he tells us the story. And there's a sort of blurred edge between those two. And that, and that brings me to the other thing that I wanted to talk about, which is the, the question of identity in the book and mm. these sort of blurred edges between fantasy and reality. The Goldens, that's, you know, that's a, a pseudonym. Um, you talk about this Persian word, Benam, what is it? Benami. Benami, yeah. purchasing of properties, which yeah. is where you purchase them anonymously, yes. probably for some shady reason. Yes. Um, Identity is just is a is a is a big question. Well, in well it's become book. such it's a, a thing, issue. hasn't yeah. it? I mean, yeah, I, yeah. Uh, you know, one of the things I think about trying to write, write up against the present moment, which this which is what this book tries to do. You're right. Is that in order to do that, you really have to try and and take stock of what's in the air. You know, what what right. what, what is it that right now, is eating at people. Right. You know, right now, and and how can I, explore and dramatize. You know, right. That, and one of the things that became absolutely clear to me was that this subject in in, in New York, the subject of gender identity, specifically, yeah. specifically, I mean, identity is a very broad church, you know, but 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 the specifically the issue of the of gender, you know, complexity, yeah, has become such a thing, you know, and and I've had you know like in my circle of friends and acquaintances, I've had a couple of people transition. Right. You know, oh, okay. um, yeah. I mean, in in both directions. Mm -hmm. You know, um, and so I've had that experience of it, personal experience uh, of it. There are people I care about, so obviously I'm involved with it. And also, you know, when I, I mean, if growing up in Bombay, there's always been a very significant transgender community there, the Hijra community. Right, Hijra. Yeah, yeah. this comes up. Yeah. And a few years ago, I was asked to take part in a project which was being initiated by the Gates Foundation where they wanted to write about, they wanted writers to go to India and write about the AIDS problems okay. in, in India. And, and I said I would go to, to Bombay because it's my old hometown. And, and I wanted, because the AIDS issue in the Hijra community is quite really a big problem you know, because of their involvement with sex work, etc. Okay. So I went and spent some you know, serious amount of time being introduced to uh, people in the community through the social workers of the Gates Foundation, you know, et cetera. Okay. And so I came to them through somebody that they sort of trusted, you know, and because of course Got this it. is a very distrustful community. For, uh, with good reason. Yeah, so it took <laughs> me, it but even then it took a while for me to feel that they were really telling me the truth 
about themselves because they use okay. they use lies as a defense mechanism you know so okay but uh, so this very intense couple of weeks that I spent with a number of, of hijras in Bombay really gave me an understanding of this life you know what this life is like what does the word hijra mean literally? well it just it just means uh, it, it means somebody Tra who's journeyed across a boundary ah, know, okay, so, okay. Uh, yeah. Oh, um, like, right, Hajira, right, yeah, I right, do, yeah, okay, so I do right. know that, yeah. Yeah, so, and I mean, the descriptions of, uh, of the operation are horrifying. Yeah, uh, yeah, and John some, Irving, that comes up in the book as John well, Irving yeah. wrote about it in, in Son of the Circus. He has a very gruesome but accurate detailed description of the operation. Um, anyway, so I had those starting points. I had those starting points both in India and here. Mm-hmm. And then I thought, okay, I just have to learn as much as I can. Yeah. yeah, and there is a wonderful passage where you where you lay out sort of basically it's a new lexicon mm. for for what like I, I was un I consider myself relatively clued in, and yeah. I I was unaware of no, many, it's, it's much so, of the terminology. The, the like, level of nuance, <laughs> the level of nuance that there now is, yeah. is so much that I thought, okay, I just have to get to grips with this, you know, and. And I mean, it interested me that the that the subject is now so fraught with division that even inside the communities there can be strong arguments about about what can seem from the outside like hair splitting, you know. Right. But 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 these things arouse very strong feelings. Like that woman's gathering, which comes yes. up in Transparent, the exactly. television show, where they're not comfortable with transgender. Men yeah, exactly. I mean, that you know, if you have, like, particularly that comes up in the case of, of like, older first-generation feminists, and particularly, like, lesbian feminists, who wanted to get away from male phallic organs. Right, you know? right. <laughs> and then if you have transgender people who have not, you know, not had the organs removed, but who identify as female. Right. And who want to be a part of this female world? Right. There's an obvious conflict there. Right. You know? and, and who may or may not want to have the organ removed yeah. because that's the nature of their particular exactly. identity. Exactly. So, so I can. So I thought I want to, you know, really. I don't want to do some lazy judgmental thing. Which I, you know? I have to say, it struck me like mm. that. I just think it's, you know, I mean. I'm 44 years old, you're a bit older than me. I think it's very easy to look at swift or swiftly happening yeah. changes yeah. in your society mm. and say, okay, you know, these silly yeah, this kids is nonsense, today. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Exactly. No, yeah. I thought it was dealt with, with a I lot thought, of really nuance, don't yeah. do that, you know, because yeah, also, yeah. In, you know, in general, my, insofar as I have a theory of the novel, my view is that novels should not preach at you. Uh -huh. You know, I, I mean, just as, as a reader, I don't like to be, have a finger wagged at me and to be told what to think, right? You know, right. What I want. Although, wait, oh, I, I, I have to interrupt you because yeah. you did say, and this was wonderful about one Godard film. You said it's been criticized as didactic, but sometimes didacticism is called for. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's sort of a joke. Okay, all right, all right, sorry. Yeah, but anyway. <laughs> but yes, it's, but that's but there's a it's because it's set in a passage where people are teaching each other things. You know, right. Uh, but anyway, okay, all right, but, sorry. Yeah. But um, okay. I mean, I think what the, what the novel does at its best is to create a world that the reader can inhabit. Mm. And, and in that world, yes, the reader can be questioned and challenged and informed and so on, but you leave it to the reader to decide what he or she thinks right. about that place and the people in it. You know? so, 
it's much it's quite easy to say good person bad person right. you know it's much more interesting not to say that and on that note mm. um, that brings us to the other part of the cultural moment that your book addresses which is that you have a presidential candidate who literally calls himself the Joker, mm -hmm. dresses like the Joker from Batman, and then <laughs> wins the election. And, and, and the, the rallying cry at his rallies is ha, ha, ha. And, but I thought it was interesting because, because Nero Golden, who's you know, the, the father of the family and power center in a way, he has Trump-like elements about him. He puts. He's a real he estate puts his developer. name up there, and he's a real estate person. So yes, there is. I mean, there is that echo, which is there deliberately, partly for comic reasons. Um, but of course, Nero is very untrumpy in many other ways. You know? oh, right, okay. right, so, exactly. Uh, no, the thing about the Joker, it just—I don't know—it's it's, it's, it's <laughs> an awful second-rate pun, but <laughs> but the Joker and the Trump are the two most exceptional playing cards. Okay. You know, they're, right. they're the two playing cards that don't behave like the other playing cards. Right. So that's what gave me the idea of, of doing that. And then I think the idea of somebody with green hair, you know, and a very white face seemed not inappropriate as a way of talking about this gentleman. Yeah, and yet, you know, and I guess what I'm saying is that it, it gets at some of what we're dealing with in this cultural yeah. political moment, yeah. but it doesn't do it in a way that is obvious or preachy. It's really no. not Trump exactly. Not exactly. The word the words Donald Trump don't occur in the novel, you know. So um, And uh, and also I mean I, I guess what I mean is that like the Joker isn't exactly Trump. In no. a way you're sort of you're sort of parodying this state of like semi-fiction that we now inhabit. Yes, exactly. You know? what, what I'm trying to say is that here are real people in a real place, right. a real city at a real time, you know, facing the various problems of their lives and, and dealing with them right. realistically. That's what's happening. But then if you go to the level of power, to the level, you know, suddenly it's cartoons. Yeah. You know, so, so here we are as real people going about the lives uh, that we lead in this city, but up there, above us, right. there's, a, there's a war of cartoons. You know? and, and I wanted that to be, I mean, the only thing in the novel which is in any way not naturalistically real is, is that, is the stuff the, about the Joker. The Joker you know? yeah. and, and I wanted to say that's because that something has happened to reality at that level. You know? It's actually been de deformed. Right. into something grotesque. And, and at the same time, the characters on the ground living their everyday lives, mm -hmm. there too, though, there are questions of how fiction permeates yes. our lives. Well, it's a kind of heightened fiction, a heightened realism. You know, there's a phrase that René, the filmmaker, uses about what he wants to do. Right. That he talks about operatic realism. Yeah. You know? And I think, in a way, sort of that's what I'm trying to do. Because you know, realism is a very broad church. That, you know, at, the one, at the one end of realism, you have, like Raymond Carver, you have, you have, you have you know, kitchen sink realism. Right. And, and at the other end of realism, you have high modernism. You have James Joyce, Marcel Proust, etc. That that's realism too. Yeah, yeah. Know? But that big spectrum, I thought. And I thought, where exactly along that rainbow, you know, do I want to position this book? You know, and and it's somewhere. It's not quite at the Raymond Carver end. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's it's closer to the modernist end, but it's not quite as playful and mold breaking as that. So right, right. so it's 
it tries to use the language of this sort of heightened language which comes partly from you know the book is constantly making references to Greek and Roman myth and mm -hmm. one of the things about tragedy in the Greek sense is that you know what's going to happen and then it happens right you know? right right the, right. the, the, the sort of inevitability it's like you know somebody tied to the railway line and there's an express train coming at them right you know um, and you know it's going to hit them and then it hits them mm -hmm. you know it's that the inevitability of it you know so here you have this family with a shady past and a pretty disturbed present actually right coming to new york completely concealed in fact in the novel you never find out what their real names were right you know that's um, right it's only the fake names are the names by which we know them yeah I have a sense of what their real names are, but I just decided I wouldn't <laughs> tell you. You know, so, and you know, because you know as a reader from early on that these secrets will not be kept. You know that the that the skeletons in the in the closet will come out of the closet and start dancing around. Yeah, you and know the house will fall. You, you know, know that you know that, yeah. that we know about houses in novels. <laughs> yes, <laughs> they tend to fall. You know, so. Especially when there's like when there is a rich and powerful father yes. at the head of them. Exactly, you know? whether yeah. it's the house of Usher or the house of Atreus or the you know or Faulkner. Faulkner, you know. You know yeah. I mean, houses have a bad history <laughs> in novels. <laughs> so, so, so I think you know any reasonably informed reader beginning the book will understand that there's a sense of foreboding right you know and and um, and that's not quite naturalistic fiction you know that that idea of you know right. big figures on a stage because i said i thought about the gardens as being as being like an amphitheater being like people are acting out their lives there yeah so yeah. it has this heightened dramatic uh, realism but i do think it is realism i mean i really think the thing that has really made me happy with the early readings of the book is how people here in New York have loved the description of, of New York in the book. You know? mm -hmm. And, and uh, I thought, you know, I mean, I've now been here for almost 20 years, so I would be disappointed not to be able to do that, you know. But, but yeah. still, it's nice when people do like it. And I mean, I had at least two people who are both lifetime New Yorkers who didn't know that those McDougal Sullivan Gardens existed. Uh, I've been here for 25 years. Yeah, yeah. I immediately went to Wikipedia and, and read yeah, all People that, made yeah. looking it up on Google Maps, <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. and yeah. I kept saying, yeah, they're really there, you know. I just, the only thing I changed was that I wanted one house on the gardens to be grander than the others. Right. You know, the, the, the actual, the golden house. And so I sort of, in my mind, just transplanted a big kind of Upper East Side townhouse and just plonked it at one end of the gardens, mm -hmm. you know, and it's not there. I mean, right. if, you, if, you, if you go to the gardens, they're all the same. All the, they've got a dozen or so houses on each side. They're all built at exactly the same time to the same spec specification. And I think that's part of the concept, yeah. right? Yeah, I yeah. mean, the, uh, some relative exactly. equality among neighbors. Exactly, and, and it always, you know, it for a long time had a very bohemian, artsy kind of population. Right. around there. It's sort of changing now, like the whole of downtown is changing. Mm -hmm. I mean, I first knew about them in the 80s when I first had realized that I had friends who lived there. Right. And, you know, the, the New York was different then. But interesting. More violent, I guess. More violent <laughs> and, more, and downtown certainly much more creative, you know, much more mm. full of artists and painters. I mean, and you'd have to go to parts of Brooklyn now, maybe Bushwick. Yeah, yeah everybody know, got pushed out by the money, yeah, yeah. you know. I mean, just they just yeah. got too... I mean, I remember when I used to come to New York in the 70s and 80s that the whole of Soho was, was art galleries. You know, mm. And you, you could spend the weekend, you know, kind of gallery hopping in, in around Soho. And now they've all gone. They're all way out west in Chelsea and 
It's a bit sad. It is. It's really changed. <laughs> you know, recently I had, for some reason, I had to watch Woody Allen's movie, Hannah and Her Sisters, again. Okay. And, I mean, it's a wonderful film, but the thing that really struck me, because it's all filmed downtown, you know, and, and how different it was. So I found myself yeah. watching it mesmerized by the streets, you know, and by the neighborhood, which are streets that I'm very familiar with, but they don't look like that now. You yeah, know, I, um, I came to NYU in 1990, yeah. and until the year I graduated, nobody was going to Brooklyn. Mm -hmm. Nobody I knew would go mm -hmm. there except to buy used clothing in the Hasidic neighborhood. Yes, yeah. yes, exactly. No, I mean, <laughs> and, and even, I mean, even as recently as, you know, during the time I've lived here, which is 18 years, yeah. you know, whole areas of Brooklyn have become completely, you know, normal. Which like like bed right. no, nobody would go. Right. Nobody would go. Right. And now you know, everybody's saying it's getting too expensive. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. So. Well, I mean, I, you know, I, I guess I guess this. I mean, are there cities in the world that this doesn't happen to? I mean. No. I mean, I think it's a it is a, it is a global phenomenon, but <laughs> yeah. somehow because of the the intense concentration nature of the space in Manhattan. Yeah, you know uh, the changes look more dramatic. You know, when, when suddenly whole neighborhoods change overnight. Indeed, I, I think this is a good place for us to go to the surprise clips okay. and see what our, see change the direction, like as Monty Python used to say. Now for <laughs> something completely different. <laughs> this is Richard Dawkins. Uh huh. How unscientific belief plagues the alt right and religion. Mm -hmm. Well, let's see where we go with that. All right, good. It's very unfortunate when you inadvertently find people agreeing with you whom they're the last people who wish to agree with you. I mean, I despise Trump. I despise everything that he, that he stands for. Uh, but it's perfectly true that many people think that I ought to be on his side because he has these draconian, illiberal, horrible policies towards Muslims. I mean, trying to stop Muslims entering the country. What a horrible thing to do. What an what a unwise, illiberal, inhumane thing to do. I am, I'm embarrassed if people on the outright agree with something that I say for the wrong reasons. There's not a great deal about religion in Science in the Soul. Most of what I have to say about that is in my earlier book, The God Delusion, so I can rehearse that if you wish. Um, to me, as a scientist, the main argument is a scientific one. I think that the hypothesis that the universe was created by a supernatural intelligence is a scientific hypothesis. It's a bad hypothesis, it's a false hypothesis, but it has to be judged on its scientific merits. The universe would be a very different kind of universe if there was a supernatural creative intelligence in it than if there wasn't. So much of my argument is a scientific argument. There is no positive reason to believe in anything supernatural. If you look at all the reasons that have been offered, none of them stand up, none of them hold water. We have, in the form of Darwinian evolution, we have a superb theory of why living things have come into being, why they are the way they are, why they look as though they've been designed, and they undoubtedly do look as though they've been designed. The illusion of design in living things is immensely powerful, and it's no wonder that until Darwin came along, almost everybody believed that it was created 
by a supernatural intelligence. But we now have Darwin. We now have Darwin and his successors. We now know how life came about. And the complexity and the beauty, the elegance and the illusion of design of life has always been by far the most powerful argument for the existence of supernatural gods. And that is completely blown out of the water. The secondary argument is whether religion has evil effects, whether religion has bad effects. And on balance, I think it does. You can't argue somebody out of their faith. They simply say, oh, that's my faith. You have to accept it. And that means that if their faith tells them, if their religious upbringing tells them that they must do bad things like blow things up, kill apostates, if their religion tells them that, then you can't argue them out of it because it comes from their faith. And faith, by definition, has no argument. Faith, by definition, can shelter behind the wall that says, no, it's my faith. Uh, I don't have to defend it. It's just there. It's just faith. That, I think, is potentially very evil. That's very far from saying that every religious person is evil, of course. Many people do good things because of their faith, and that's great. But the fact that faith can lead to and does lead to significant numbers of e evil things and the, the horrific repression of women, for example, in certain theocracies and of gay people in, in theocracies, the, the sentences of apostates to death, the, the joyless suppression of music and art and fun in certain countries because of religious indoctrination, religious faith. Um, th the fact that this can follow from religious faith. The people who do these awful things don't think they're terrible. They think they're doing good. They think they're being righteous. They think they're obeying the will of their God and that they're going to go to paradise because of it. That, I think, because it has the potential to be evil, uh, we have to regard that as an evil. So Richard Dawkins on on uh, on the dangers of faith. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is a topic you've you've certainly yeah. addressed before. I mean, I know Richard for a long time, and I you know I agree with more or less everything he just he said in that clip. You know, and and uh, yeah, I would have expected. Uh, I mean, that that it's interesting the point he makes about disliking his him the, the way in which people on the extreme right here uh, sometimes try to co-opt him. Right. You know, uh, I mean, I saw today a letter from members of Johnny Cash's family strongly objecting to him, to Johnny Cash, being in some way used as an icon of the alt-right, because you know, they said that actually he was the exact opposite of that, that he was... Uh, I wasn't you know, aware that they had tried to, to yeah, co-opt him they, in they, they said that, you know, in the... Because he's a real American man or something. Yeah, yeah. yeah, and, yeah. Uh, there apparently was stuff in Charlottesville that used his image and so on. Oh, my God. And, and so, you know, you have this letter from, you know, Roseanne Cash and the rest of the family saying, you know, leave, leave Johnny <laughs> Cash alone, you know. Yeah. And, and I can see that that would be horrifying to have somebody who was a liberal progressive voice being co-opted you know, by the extreme right. right. And I mean, you know, Richard Dawkins is a, essentially a liberal progressive voice. You know. Right. And but, I think I, I feels to me strange how that how those categories, I mean, those categories themselves are strange and how they've started to morph is strange. It's like, you know, are you familiar at all with um, Majid Nawaz? Yes. Like, yeah. So here, here's a guy who's trying to 
talk about, you know, he's trying to talk in a nuanced way mm -hmm. about radical Islam. Yeah, and he gets attacked from the left. Yeah, and he's you know, considered, and, yeah, they throw him in, yeah. you know, with Ayan Hirsi yeah, Ali yeah, as some kind yeah. of fascist or yeah, whatever. Yeah, no, no, and it's, you know, uh, it's, uh, it's one of the really worrying things about, about the left right now is, yeah. is how unsubtle it is. How tin-eared it is. Can Not I, that the right is particularly no, no, I mean, but the moment. No, 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 to me, the right is beyond the pale anyway. But yeah, yeah, I don't yeah. want people who I think of as being broadly speaking on my side, who think mainly as I think, you know, to start displaying signs of stupidity. Indeed. You know, and and um, there is some of that around. I, I mean, I think, I mean, obviously I'm not a scientist, and he is, so I don't speak in quite the same kind of language as, as, as Dawkins would. Right. But it does seem to me that there are two regions. I mean, if you look historically at the evolution of religion, it seems to me there are two reasons why we have religions. One is to explain the question of origins, you know, the question right. of how, how did we get here, you know. And, and as Dawkins says, it looks like somebody designed it. You know, if you look at creation, it looks like somebody designed it. If you look at a bird, you know, if you, if you, yeah. if you look at a mountain. Yeah, it's incredible, it, it's detailed. Yeah, and you think, oh God, who, who came up with that? You know, and the second reason why people go towards religion is for, is for ethics. That's to say, now, now that we're here, mm. how shall we live? What is, what is right, what is wrong, sure. what is good, what is evil? You know, so, yeah, yeah. so those are the two giant questions of all religions. Could yeah. we throw yeah. in maybe the third as like, what? Like we die, so what's and the point? Where do point? we go? Yeah, like where do, where what's do we the go? point of yeah. all this, yeah. given that so, we die? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is which is related to the first who yeah, created yeah, yeah. us? Yeah, sure, it, sure. You know, so, uh, but it, it seems to me that one of the things we can now say about every creation story of every world religion right. is that it's wrong. <laughs> That's not what happened. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. We have pretty good evidence. <laughs> yes. You know. I mean, he uses in in that clip he uses you know the the Judeo-Christian idea of the, the 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 creator working for six days and resting on the seventh. Um, that didn't happen. You right. know. And and, <laughs> and I mean, other religions, other mythologies have wonderful creation myths. The Hindu creation myth of the of the god Indra churning the primal soup of the universe in a giant churn yeah. you know, and creating, so to speak, the universe, creating clumps of material which become galaxies and you know, right, right, right. You know, I mean, it's beautiful, but not true. Do you think right. I'm, I, I mean, I, I, this is a slight non sequitur, but do you mm. think I would be out on a limb, it's out on a limb to say, though, that Hinduism has a slightly more provisional relationship yes. to the reality of the stories that it, it does. tells? I mean, like I, I, it's very, I mean, Hinduism is, is very, at its, at its most profound level, is, is almost like uh, abstract thought. And quite attractive for that reason. But if you accept that that's not what we now know about creation, right. you know, so we can put that aside. The other, the ethical question is, I think the problem of trying to get your moral imperatives, you know, from priests, you know, mm -hmm. from holy books and from mullahs or priests or rabbis or whoever it might be, is that they can, and not always as he says, but they can sometimes lead you down very dangerous paths. You know, that, 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 sure. I mean, what has happened in India is that the rise of a kind of Hindu extremism is really deforming the history of the country. 
mm. including literally having the history books rewritten okay. um, in, in order to propagandize uh, one particular vision okay. of, of the country. And what's happened in Islam, largely because of the enormous oil money at the, at the, you know, in the power, in the possession of the Saudis, is that this tiny cult, the Wahhabi slash Salafi cult, which almost nobody followed, has suddenly been propagated all over the world through madrasas and etc. through the deliberate act of the Saudi regime to use its oil money to propagate this very extremist, uh, fanatical Islam. I mean, the question is the question is whether religion as a system for creating. I mean, forget about the creation issue, mm. but like uh, as a system for values, mm. whether that tends toward abuse or evil more than other human created systems of values, yeah. say Kantian ethics or yeah, something. Well, Dawkins says, yes. I say not proven. Yeah. You know? I mean, I mean, yeah. Uh, but my view is this, that I, and this is something that, I mean, Christopher Hitchens and I would argue about this, that his view was, you know, religion bad. Right. Full stop. Right. You know, uh, my, my view was that the private practice of religion is not my business. Hmm. You know, that's to say, if somebody don't ask, don't tell <laughs> in the privacy of their own life okay. gains comfort, guidance, strength, whatever, from whatever bunch of cockeyed ideas they might follow, I might disagree with those ideas, but it's essentially not my business. Hmm. You know, uh, when they bring those ideas into the sphere of public life, and they start trying to tell people what to do. Right. Then That's, it's my business. Got it. And, the, and then I don't like it. So uh, I made that public-private distinction. Christopher used to say that's a false distinction because all those people think like that anyway, and, and so they are enabling and giving sucker to the fanaticism, whether or not they speak up, whether or not they become public. Okay. You know, so, so, I mean, it... And I mean, I guess an argument could be made, though, that like private religion mm. sort of doesn't exist. Doesn't I mean, there exist. always needs to be a public exactly. power. Arm, exactly. So, that, so. That, that would have been the Hitchens position. Yeah. I mean, my view is that we all have some sort of personal structure of morality, right. you know, whatever we call it. Right. You know, we, we all have it. Right. And that is how we live as best we can. According to the those according to those principles which we carry around inside us, um, yeah, which are uh, which are cobbled together and very yeah. rarely explicitly stated yes. and idiosyncratically infused with our own experience. Yes, and and and, and and not really fully examined. Right, you know, and, right, right. And and maybe contradictory in some ways. Yeah. You know, etc. But that's how we all live, and it seems to me that that's our own personal business. You know. It becomes other people's business when it starts impacting other people's lives. Yeah, I think about that in the sense of, so I'm reading this other book um, that's about to come out, this Kurt, Kurt Anderson's oh, yeah. Fantasyland, which I think you would probably find really fascinating. It's a 500-year yeah. history of kind of fantasia in America, oh, fantastical really? thinking. Yeah. You know, I, I think this hard and bright distinction between fantasy and reality for mm. humans is is a is a spurious one. Like I don't yeah. I don't think any of us lives in reality. No. Well, I've like, always thought that there's a there's a problem with the terms, you know, because <laughs> the point about us is that we're imaginative creatures and 
dreamers and inventors, and you have to have the fantasy of a wheel before you can have a wheel. Right. You know, if you, if you don't imagine a radio, you can't have a radio. Exactly. You know, so, so that the border between the dreamed thing and the real thing is always being crossed. It's, it's, it's endlessly yeah. being crossed. It's a, per, it's a permeable frontier. Yeah, you know? that's what we do. Yeah, it's what as we a do. Uh, the way in which uh, dreams function in, in life, you know, is, is also, I mean, there's a lot written about this, but, you know, it's quite clear that our dreaming self is, is relevant to our waking self, mm, you know, um, right. and, and, um, and yet is quite other. You know, it's quite other in terms of how it functions. So, right. yeah, I mean, I, you know, I remember when I first, long before I had ever been to Latin America, South America, Central America, anywhere, I, I started reading this great literature of, of that part of the world, you know, Carlos Fuentes, Juan Rulfo, Garcia Marquez, Borges, Borges, Borges yeah. Machado de Assis, you know, all these amazing writers. And the first thing that struck me about it is that the world they were describing was very like the world I knew in India. Hmm. That's to say, they're, they're both worlds in which there's a great discrepancy between the rich and the poor. They're both worlds in which there is a powerful colonial heritage. Hmm. They're, they're both worlds in which, in which religion plays an enormously important role, right. dif different religions, etc. So uh, they had all kinds of echoes you know, that I could hear reading them, but then there was also all this surrealism. Then I went, started going to Latin America, and I thought, oh, this is, it's actually like this. <laughs> <laughs> the, the surrealism is a part of daily life. It's just, life. yeah, it's yeah, just, yeah. It, it, they're right, they're, these people are, and it was funny because I remember when Midnight's Children came out and people were talking about the surrealism in that novel. Mm. And I would say to people, you know, this isn't surrealism, it's understatement. Because <laughs> <laughs> actually what's going on is much crazier than this. And, and I began to think when I started going to South America, I thought, you know, that's exactly the same. The, the reality is wilder than anything in the books. You, you mention in The Golden House, uh, Bunuel's The Exterminating Angel mm. a couple of times, and I hadn't seen it before, and I watched mm. it, mm. and Wonderful wow, yeah, <laughs> wow, but, but you know, there too, yeah, you have like normality, yeah. basically And everything crumbling. about the film is realistic except one thing. Right, right, one wonderful thing. One yeah, extraordinary I, thing. We won't give away. No, but, it's, <laughs> but that one thing orchestrates everything else. But within the framework of that crazy surrealist element, everybody behaves as human beings would behave. That's right. I will say that the bear in the house is a little <laughs> surreal too. Yes, the bear is not good. <laughs> let's, um, let's do one more. Clip, All right, huh? okay, and, yeah. Okay, this is Ariel Levy, uh, um, and it's called Nobody Can Have It All, Including and Especially Women. Well, I mean, I think that there's this funny idea that people have, that women have, that feminism somehow said that we can have it all. And feminism did not say that. You know, I think that the thinking that you can have every single thing you want in life is not the thinking of a feminist, it's the thinking of a toddler. And feminism says you're fully human. You're a full human being as a woman. But the human condition is not getting everything you want in life. So it stands to reason that would apply to us too. 
I really thought that it was a worthwhile project to try to be the protagonist in my own life and that I wanted to be a writer and I wanted to be like an adventurer. I mean, that, those are the kinds of non-traditional female lives that I looked up to and aspired to emulate. And I did get to do that. I do get to do that um, as a writer for The New Yorker. And it's great. I love it. But when you, it, what my experience was is if you start, if you decide at 37, I'm ready to have a family and anything goes wrong, as it did for me, you're sort of, that you've kind of run out the clock and then you don't get to do that. Then, that, then you've missed that part of life, that field of experience. I think that there's sort of a design flaw in the human female animal that like at exactly the moment you feel you finally might be mature enough to be equipped to take care of a person other than your own self, that is the moment when your body says, I'm out. And it's not the same for men. That's a, that is a woman's cross to bear. That's a, that's a tough thing to come to terms with, I guess, the fact that there are trade-offs in life. Yep. And I wonder, you know, for you, what tough decisions have you had to make in terms, in order to be able to continue to, to, to produce your work in terms of like how you've, how you've lived, you know? Well, uh, I mean, there are things you, there are things you can't do. I mean, you, you, writing requires a person to stay in one place for extended periods of time mm -hmm. and do very little else. <laughs> right. You know? And so basically almost everything else is what you have to give up. Right. You know? I mean, I, I have like non-writer friends who have had much, you know, Ariel Levy is talking about adventure and so on. I mean, m most writers don't have adventurous lives. Mm. You know? it's, it, uh, Journalists sometimes because journalism takes you all over the place. Right, but, and maybe like uh, Paul Theroux, he's the only guy. And maybe like, <laughs> yes, yeah, travel, travel, yeah, writer, yeah. travel writing sometimes. But you know, most writers are stuck in a room. That's that's a part of the trade-off. Right, know? right. Um, and the world, I think, pulls at you though. It wants you yeah, to go do yeah. a lot of stuff. And yes. I think you know, I have a a view of writing which is inspired to a great extent by, by my reading of Charles Dickens because one of the things I admire about Dickens mm. is how much of life he managed to get himself into. The fact that he can credibly write about petty criminals, sneak thieves, right. murderers, but also like pretty bourgeois shopkeepers and all the way up the social scale you know, to aristocrats, that he, can, he has a, like top to bottom knowledge of his, of his world. And do you think? And is that? Do you think that that is a result of his like early experience and having a good memory, basically? Well, or I think I think he went looking just, for it. You know, yeah, I, think, yeah. I think he went, and I think that's one of the things that I say to students is don't ex that you know people always tell you to write what you know, which is a good idea as long as what you know is interesting. <laughs> right, <laughs> right, know? right, right. But many people in the middle class, in the kind of college-educated and novel-writing class, mm. have pretty conventional lives, you know? And it may be that there isn't anything interesting in your personal experience, in which case, go find it. Yeah, well, know? and maybe you can write also, maybe you can write what you know mm. in the sense of 
emotionally yes, and yes. so on in other but contexts. You can't just it doesn't no, have to no more take books place about in Brooklyn. Yeah, no like, more books about how your father doesn't understand you and, <laughs> and, and your mom drinks too much. Right, right. I mean? And now, but within that, do you think that then there also has to be a certain lire way that the writer gives themselves? And I feel, I feel mm-hmm. like I, I want to say this in a way that, like, if I say it wrong, it could sound insulting, but uh, it's not meant that way. Uh, uh, that you give yourself the leeway to go into s- storytelling mode without yeah. being a, sort of an obsessive bean counter. I mean, New no. York City is realistic in this yeah, book. But I want to you know. know what I'm talking about. Yes. That's, that is that I really do. Okay. I, uh, I, if I'm going to portray a certain microcosm, like what, whatever, like life in a hospital. Right, you know, right, right, right. I, I, I want to know what life in a hospital is like. You know, I don't want to get that wrong. So in that sense, I'm, I'm quite impressed by writers who go and put themselves in places in order to absorb ways of being which are not natural to them. Like method acting in a way, like, like Daniel yeah, Day-Lewis yeah. going and being a butcher for a yeah, year or exactly. something. Yeah, you know, like, exactly. Like, <laughs> Renee Zellweger, you know, g- secretly getting a job in a British publishing office right. to see if she could pull off being Bridget Jones. Right. And doing it completely, nobody knew it was her. Um, and I have some of that, you know, and actually right now, right now, in the aftermath of having finished this novel and thinking, what now? One of the things I'm saying to myself is I've now written two consecutive novels primarily set in New York, mm. one, one of which was a sort of fairy tale of New York and the other of which was a realist novel of New York, I think, leave home. Yeah. You know, get out of the bubble. Maybe go to somewhere where people think the opposite of you. Where are you going to go? China? I don't know. No, maybe, those, <laughs> maybe that large bit of the map that's painted red right now. <laughs> <laughs> um, I just have this instinct of wanting to go and and sort of give myself new challenges, you know, of, of understanding. I think that's wonderful. Yeah, mm. I mean, I think that the, I think that for someone who has written as much as you have, yeah. to to still be in that place. Yeah, that's you want to. You want to. I, I hate repeating myself. Yeah. You know, I hate just it's doing boring. It, doing. Yeah, boring. You know, and recently, you know, Robert Persig died recently, and I took Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance oh. off the shelf. Uh-huh which was a book I hadn't read since back in the day when it came out. And it had, I mean, I have to say it had a big impact on me as a, as a young man. Mm. And I looked at it again now. One of the things I really liked about it was the father-son relationship. You know, this, this sort of father and son going across America on a motorbike and, you know, and, right. and kind of bonding. You know. yeah. And I thought, there's something there. And I talked to my son, my younger son, who's 20, and I said, you want to come on a road trip? Yeah. And, and he said, absolutely. Oh, that's and, cool. And his only criticism was that he didn't think I was a good enough driver. <laughs> <laughs> so maybe he can drive. So maybe he can drive, yeah, exactly. But anyway, I, this is just, I don't even know if I'll ever do this, but I have some kind, my instinct says, get out of the box. You know, go somewhere where you don't know things. Okay, well, yeah. I'm, I'm going to go on record and saying, uh, saying that I hope you do that. Okay, good. I think that'll be good. All right, good. Well, I hope I do too. I do too. All mm-hmm. right, no. Sal- Sal- Salman Rushdie, it's been really great talking to you. Thanks for being on Thank you. Show. That was great. Thank you. All right. And that wraps up another episode of Think Again. This was a really special one for me. Um, It's the first time that I've had a guest back on the show. We had two episodes with Henry Rollins, but that was one long conversation that we we split into two shows. 
Um, in this case, I first met Salman Rushdie very, very early in the life of this show when I was very, very new to interviewing. And we were, it was a phone call and he was in Los Angeles and he was pressed for time. You know, it was a great conversation, but getting to sit down with him again two years later with more than a hundred shows under our belt, that, that was really cool. And I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. Um, as always, if you want to tell me anything, any of your thoughts about the show or yourself or how you're listening or uh, anything at all, uh, feel free to write me at jason at bigthink.com. And I also encourage you, if you're on Facebook and you love the show, to join us on our Facebook group, Friends of Think Again, a Big Think Podcast. Just go to Facebook and search for Friends of Think Again, a Big Think Podcast and uh, request to join and I'll approve you usually within one day. And uh, we have a lot of conversations about the ideas that come up on this show and about all kinds of things. Um, so please join us there if you can. And we'll be back next week with the writer Claire Massoud. And I hope you can join us for a wonderful conversation with her.